You're listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. My name is Don. Good morning. It is an honor to be here. I'm one of the pastors here at the Axis. Um, and welcome to Palm Sunday. It's a, it's a day that is given the name based on what we will know happens, the, the waving of palm branches. Um, it is a, given two names in the church, Passion Week or Holy Week. I choose the passion part, honestly, because it um, comes from, I believe, the Latin that means to endure suffering. And so, uh, by word of warning, we are going to walk through that because my hope today is that our task would be that we don't rush past this week, that we would enter Jerusalem with him today, that we would see the significance of that moment of him coming to Jerusalem, very, very um, emphatic divine design in that, and that we don't just rush through it, therefore, and as I say, sometimes I do this, I, I cheapen the grace of God by not understanding the, the weight of my sin and the days that he walked to the cross. And so we'll, we'll see how that journey looks, and I pray that, therefore, this week that you just kind of walk through it and sit in it for a while. And I hope today uh, through the Spirit that you are prepared for that. And so that is our hope as we do enter today's text. But, but I'm going to hold the reading of today's text, if that's okay, uh, until we get there. I will pray for us now, and then we will begin a, a small journey to the moment where if you're opening your Bibles, it will be Matthew 21, 1 through 11. But let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we enter this week with the excitement of a coronation, the coronation of your Son. We know now what they then didn't know. And so as we look back, they failed to see that Jesus is King. I pray that falls on us. As we enter your word in this week, help us, Father, deepen our view of what you have accomplished with your great plan and your great love. May we, through your Spirit, understand the weight of our sin that your Son took from us, that our Savior carried this to the cross. To see that crushing weight, Father, as he falls to his knees and repeatedly asks, let this cup pass from me. So, Father, may we likewise gain discipline and devotion from his love that is witnessed there as he says, yet not my will, but yours. Father, may this time together, therefore, be to his glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. This will be the last time that Jesus enters Jerusalem. We know from the book of Luke that it's been a um, moment he has enjoyed all of his life that as he was young, probably 40 days old or thereabouts, a little, little older, he would have entered to be uh, the, really called the redemption of the firstborn, that he would have gone through that ceremony. And so at 40 days old, his parents, very faithful, take him to the temple. We are told further in Luke 2 that, that yearly his parents went up to Jerusalem uh, because of its elevation, they always say up to, up to Jerusalem during the Passover. And so again, this will be his last Passover, one of the first when he was 40 days or, or when he was 
one, I guess, and then for those first 12 years, we have some record of it, that, that in one of those moments when he is 12, it's when he is separated from his parents, and, and they come back after being gone a couple of days and realize he's not with them, and he's in his father's house, the temple, listening to teaching and asking questions there of the teachers. And, and so we see as he turns and, and in a moment heads toward Jerusalem, this has been a yearly ritual based on him fulfilling the law that all males were to appear before God in Jerusalem at least three times a year. That's said twice in Exodus, once in Leviticus, and Deuteronomy uh, 16 says it succinctly uh, that this is what we... Uh, Y'all have that slide? That, that There we go. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, which was Jerusalem. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began at the meal... Uh, called Passover, and then that week was the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Then the Feast of Weeks, which was seven weeks after that, so it was counted from the Passover. And then one in the fall, which was the Feast of Booths, uh, which was Sukkot, which, which represented a time when, when they were in the wilderness and God led them. And so that was a memory that they were supposed to build shelters, temporary shelters, like they had dwelt in in the a desert. And so we, we see those three, and in the book of John, we actually get these festival cycles that we see him repeatedly going up to Jerusalem to enjoy. But again, this will be his last. And, and as he approaches, this is, this is very much in a divine plan. As Dave read from Psalm 2, I'm, Psalm 2 is written a thousand years before Jesus uh, by David, and, and it holds an overarching plan of the king. It was used in coronations, we believe, of the king. But no king of Israel ever fulfilled what's stated there until we see a king coronated on Palm Sunday. And so when we begin to see that, we, we uh, understand that the reason this is his last Passover is, uh, honestly, the leadership in Jerusalem, the religious leaders, have grown weary of him. They've grown tired of him. They, they, they see him in the crowds that, that are gathered constantly around him and that the people are going to him and believing in him. And so their self-rule, self-autonomy is being threatened. They fear that, that Rome will even get involved and, and take away what part of the nation they have. And so very much so we see these two forces at odds with one another. And when we see that, the book of John uh, pointedly places that before us. And I think I've got that. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, that is, the leaders of Jerusalem uh, temple, and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? meaning this year because he was under such duress. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. And honestly, we understand from the Gospels that they'd already thought we will arrest him and kill him at an opportune time. And so Jesus makes himself rather scarce in these weeks from the temple authorities. And they don't know where he is, but we know where he's been and if we begin to trace that route, it's, it's everything culminating for this scene of Matthew 21, this entry into Jerusalem, that if we notice how he makes his way to Jerusalem, there are signs being given everywhere of who this is. And this starts basically in Matthew 16 at Caesarea Philippi, which is way north of Capernaum. I believe we've got a map of that. 
um, if you look at that, you can see the, the top of the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum, where he had made more residence. But Caesarea Philippi, and the large mountain just above it is Mount Hermon. And so at Caesarea Philippi, what occurs is he has his disciples around him at a place actually of a large cave, which was at the time known as the entrance to the underworld, you might say Hades. And at that place, he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they look and they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Come back. Others say Elijah. Still some say Jeremiah and others just say you're one of the prophets. Come back because of the things that he'd been doing. And then Jesus asked a question, a question that we will see asked at the entry today, at the walls of Jerusalem when he gets there. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am. And Peter gives that famous response. You're the Christ. You're the Son of God. And Jesus immediately says, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but, but God the Father, that what had been spoken came from heaven. You're the Christ, the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting on. You're the one who, who will redeem us. You're him. And then Jesus gives distinct orders not to tell anyone, but to keep that secret. And I say he's keeping it secret because he's waiting for the moment in time and space that is historically documented at his entry to overtly reveal his identity. Not mere man, but man who is also God, who is the king of the universe. And we will see that. We see that that journey where the chief priests don't know where he is, he moves from Caesarea Philippi, I believe, although it's debated, up to that mountain of Mount Hermon, which is 10,000 feet tall, and takes three of the disciples with him. And while there, he is transfigured before them. He literally turns bright white light as beaming in his glory. I believe it is what Moses would have seen of the glory of God on Mount Sinai, so much so that Moses' face also shined in reflection. And they see that there. And as they stand there, Peter, not knowing what to do except let's build something, a voice from heaven says, this is my son, Psalm 2. This is my son. Listen to him. He will make his way down that mountain, come back to Caesarea, and then the journey begins for real onto Jerusalem. He will make his way into northern Samaria where they are really rebuffed. And at that point, of course, two of the disciples want to call fire down and Jesus rebukes them for that, for, for that's not why he's here. And, and at that moment when he is turned away, he, like most Galileans, would have taken the Transjordan, the words go across the Jordan and, and come to Jerusalem that way. And we've got kind of a route of that that shows his, his, his route. He would have come to Samaria and then crossed the Jordan River, gone into Perea, and actually dwelt there for a while, though John tells us the ministry is ongoing. People are coming to him. People are being healed. He's teaching that that doesn't stop. But he's at a distance where he is safe from the rulers and authorities in Jerusalem. 
And he stays there a while doing that ministry, being questioned some by authorities that were sent there, when all of a sudden, a friend of his, he gets note, is sick and dying. And it's Lazarus. Lazarus lives in Bethany. And Jesus waits. And those with him said, well, you're not going to go, are you? You... you Surely you're not going to go. And he, he says, yes, we're going up. But, but those people in Jerusalem, they'll, they'll stone you. They want to kill you and, and very aware of this. Yes. And Jesus' delay is on purpose. And when he says that Lazarus has now fallen asleep, they say, well, he'll wake up. And then he very pointedly says, no, no, no. Our friend Lazarus is dead. But so that you might see the glory of God. This has happened. And he moves, he and his disciples, to Bethany. He meets a, a grieving Martha and said, oh, If only you had been there, our, my brother wouldn't have died. It's been four days he's been in the tomb. Mary basically says the same thing. And in between there, what he says to Martha is, Well, he'll be raised. Well, I know, Jesus, he'll be raised at the end. But, but if you'd have been here. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, will never die. And he calls Mary and Martha's brother out of the tomb, Lazarus. Come forth after weeping over the destruction of sin that causes death. And Lazarus comes out bound. And he says, loose that man. He's set free from his grave clothes. And Jesus moves back across the Jordan. Why? People are actually believing in this. The text tells us they're actually believing because Lazarus is walking around there. And Jesus moves away because it's not the correct time. He's moved carefully back to the Transjordan, I believe, until what we see is him knowing that Passover has come, as John says, moves on a Thursday. I believe that because he's going to, to enter Jericho on a Thursday. And he comes through the old part of the city into the new that Herod the Great built. And in that transition, two blind men are there. And one of them named Bartimaeus screams out for him, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stops the procession and, and the pilgrims and the, the thousands that would have been coming are, are stopped for this blind man. And so Jesus says, what do you want of me? I want to see. And so Jesus restores his sight. And the first sight he sees is the son of David. King in the line of David. And Bartimaeus, it says, gets up and follows him, headed toward Jerusalem. I believe that would have happened on a Thursday because then he pauses as he's leaving the, the one city and then the other. He sees a guy in a tree, a guy we would despise, a traitor to his nation, a tax collector named Zacchaeus. And using a divine imperative of, I must... Zacchaeus, come down, for I must stay with you. And, and, and residing there, 
there's those outside that go, can, why is he staying with sinners? Because as we sang a few minutes ago, this is why he's going to Jerusalem to stand between the wrath of God and sinners. He would stay there and then on Friday, because John says six days before the Passover, which would have been the Friday, today is Sunday, two days ago, Passover was at hand and many went up from the country there. And then six days in John 12 puts him at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus on that Friday at some appointed time. He would have moved the, the 14, 15 miles from Jericho to Bethany. I think we have a map of that Bethany. Bethany sits about a mile and a half, two miles outside of the temple proper or Jerusalem. In between there, we should see Bethphage or Bethpage uh, as a place he will do something rather remarkable in a moment. But he stays the night there, a Friday, and I believe on that Friday night, that's the start of the Sabbath, we see him sitting with and staying with those who loved him, those, those who knew him, and yet crowds outside also are knowing who he is. But the intimacy of that moment turns into a Sabbath, which would have been the Saturday, and then that Saturday night, we see that there's a feast given on that Sabbath, as, as was done for great rabbis. And, and during that time, I believe it was in his honor because the meal's being served, and they say at the home of Simon the leper, and, and some scholars believe Simon the leper might have been Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' dad. I love that thought. It is just conjecture, but it's a great thought. And one thing I do know is that his name is, shouldn't be Simon the leper because he's in there eating the meal. It should be Simon the former leper, because I believe that Jesus had at one point touched him, the untouchable, and healed him of his leprosy. And now he's dining with him. And Mary and Martha are there, and Lazarus, and Mary, waiting for this moment, brings a costly vial of perfume and breaks it and pours it over his feet and begins to wipe it with the hair of her head. It's the most intimate worship you can imagine. And the smell of the perfume fills the room. And the woman who has grown disgusted with this man says, why did she waste this ointment like this? It's Judas. We could have sold this Given the money to the poor. John tells us he said that because he carried the money box. And he would have taken his cut from the cell of the perfume. He's grown cynical. He's turned inward to self. As we see those who will meet him in Jerusalem are full of the God of autonomy that gets us all except this one who's been anointed this night. The next morning is Sunday. This morning, he would have gathered himself. The crowds outside would have been growing from what we see in the book of Matthew, verse 29 of 20. There's a great crowd. But if we look at what is said outside of the Jerusalem walls, there's a superlative of the word, Greek word, great. It actually is greater, greatest, to the, to the outer limit. We would, we would see that. We would see, see this crowd that... that by all conservative 
estimates are growing to about 180 to 200,000 people. If the population at that time was around 30,000, it grew six times on the Passover, so much so that they would extend the boundary of Jerusalem to Bethpage just so people could lawfully partake of the Passover meal. It was said that you had to be in Jerusalem to take it. So they extended the boundaries of so many, which means that the lambs which were chosen on Nisan 10, which was the Sunday, would be killed on the Thursday, would have numbered around 20,000 animals. And the bleeding of those lambs sometimes haunts me. And so Sunday he arises and begins to make his way. And thus we get to our text today. When they had approached Jerusalem, had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, which was Bethpage. And immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything of you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road. And others were cutting branches from the trees. We know there are palm trees from the book of John, and spreading them also on the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had arrived at Jerusalem, all the city was stirred and shaken, saying, Who is this? And the crowds who followed him were saying, This is the prophet. Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And what a scene then we have as Jesus intentionally is going to ask two disciples as he journeys on that Sunday to gather an animal, a donkey, for him to ride on. And if we look at what's happening, things that God have planned before there was anything is are being precisely manifested. That God would have this moment to announce, this is my son, that he would set his king on Zion, as Psalm 2 said, is occurring in this moment. And what we see is, what in the world is going on? But everything in that time had context. Everything. The cloaks that they take off had occurred at, at the anointing of of prior king in, in 2 Kings 9, Je Jehu. And he is anointed by a servant of Elisha at God's command. And when that happens, the soldiers and leaders around Jehu take off their coats in submission to this king and lay it before him, making a carpet before him to ride on. And that's what's happening here. The cloaks being laid down. The palm branches have contextual significance. We, we see palms at the judges where, where Deborah, a, a judge of all of Israel, sat under a palm. 
We, we see palm branches being used in the building of the, the booths, of the tents that they stayed in to, to represent the time when God was in their midst in the desert in the Exodus. But contextually, even more close to Jesus' time, roughly a little more than a century before that, you can read about it in 2 Maccabees 10, extra-biblical account of what occurred there. That, that when Antiochus Epiphanes, the horrible tyrant, had, had placed idols in the temple, when, when the Jewish leaders called the Maccabees had retaken the temple and run Antiochus out, cleansed the temple and rededicated it, they waved palm branches as a sign of victory to that particular leader. And so we see this incredible, significant. Even the voices then are raised from Psalm 118 saying, Hosanna to the king. Hosanna to the one of David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we begin to see this son of David language echoed for the last 15 miles saying this one is from David. This one is the king. The whole psalm is royal in, in, in Psalm 118. It, it is anticipation of the king coming. So blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord would have been the king who's been anointed by God and now a priest is pronouncing blessing over him as he leads the crowd into the festivals. This is very vivid imagery and context saying and pointing who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. But what in the world with, with a donkey? A king on a donkey. A king on a beast of burden, a lowly animal. That too has, has Old Testament ties. The first king of Israel, Saul, was anointed while he was looking for donkeys. He didn't find them, but he was looking for them. Solomon, David's son, was anointed and rode his father's donkey. This beast of burden, this lowly beast, meant they were going to be a king of peace. More pointed is the messianic passage from Genesis 49 that says the scepter, the rule, will never pass from the tribe of Judah, Jesus' tribe. And in so, there's this language that he, this ruler, will tie and untie a donkey. And so, again, this message of God being overtly now demonstrated, this is the king. This is the king. So much so now that scripture begins to, to come into Matthew's mind and, and John also, both of them use this language, that what is occurring here is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout loud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. And I will, notice what the one riding the, the donkey will do. I will cut off the chariots from Ephraim, which is Israel, and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nation. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, this king is going to bring peace. This is not an oppressive tyrant. This is a merciful king who brings restoration. This is not a, a king in the palace. 
This is one who is of the people. We know that because of what Matthew does. He, he purposely omits part of Zechariah to promote the word humble. In the Hebrew, it's ani. It is lowly. It is used again in Zechariah before that is announced for the poor of the land, for the marginal, for those without any political stature. In other words, this king is going to look and come from the people and he's going to identify them with them and be one of them, that he might represent them. And he's coming in peace. He's not bearing arms against other nations. He's bearing the people's sin. That's who this is. The context of Zechariah 9 falls heavy on on a prophecy made in chapter 6 of priest and king. Two offices in Israel that, that were separated. But it was said of the Messiah would combine those two such that Zechariah sees and has made a crown of two metals, gold and silver. And he places it on the high priest's head at that time, 500 years before Jesus comes. It's placed temporarily and removed and placed in the temple to illustrate that this high priest that was taken off, whose name is Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, Now the crown is placed in the temple to await the real priest and king. And Jesus rides to Jerusalem and on the morrow will cleanse the temple as a high priest. Who is this? As they get to the edge of the city wall, the leaders come out. And it says in a word where we get our word seismic in the Greek that shakes, that the whole city is now rippling with the words that are being said. Who is this? And yet the ones who are going before him and behind him in a royal procession, this is Jesus, the prophet. Definite article. As in the one who in Moses time in Deuteronomy 18 said the Lord would sin. This is him. And he is from Nazareth in Galilee. If that is so plain to some, yet yet some don't see it, why don't some see this that day? Why are some so resistant? Why do the nations rage? And the people devise vain plots. The kings of the nations set themselves and the rulers counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah anointed, saying, let us break those bonds from us. That is a a view of taking a yoke and breaking it from us. Let us cast the cords, those those lines that, that help steer one. Let us break those and throw those, cast those cords from us. Psalm 2, that that this is predicted, that this is known, that the divine plan of God is to reveal the king, but, but he will suffer and die on our behalf. But yet again, this king has not come as one to coerce 
as other kings come, he comes to invite. And the passage there of of taking a, a yoke off and casting cords off is reminiscent of Hosea 10, 250 years after this psalm was written. The nation of Israel was constantly in rebellion, constantly in rebellion. And all of a sudden, God is going to do for them what they can't do for themselves. I will come over that nation and the tenderness of their neck with a yoke. I will harness, I will put cords on Israel, on Ephraim. And then they will plow and sow with a view to righteousness and reap loving kindness. And the command becomes to break up the fallowed ground. In other words, the ground that, that is tillable, but because of the rebellion, they would not till. The, and, and it's linked to the faithfulness. They would not be faithfulness. But God is giving them means now to be faithful, placing a gentle yoke on them by invitation. Ten chapters before what we just read, you know what Jesus' invitation is? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And my yoke is easy. And my burden, it's light. He's fulfilling that in their presence against their rebellion, inviting them to come in. But the nation's rage because of autonomy of self. And I'm just as guilty. I can pass over this week so quickly, even though it's called Passover. And I, and I lose the weight and depth of my sin and what my Savior has done for me in this carefully calculated moment in time. He leaves after looking around the temple. Comes back after spending a night in Bethany does clean the temple. This is on Monday. And the moment the temple is cleaned, we read that the blind and the lame come in and are healed. The despised of society, the excluded, those who are not allowed in the temple courts, those, even the Gentiles, who were squeezed out by the practices of the, the Sadducees and those who were in control of the temple. Now it's clean. And they come in. And the leaders are indignant. And Jesus tells parables. Again, inviting, but tough parables. One such parable. Parable of the vineyard owner. There was a vineyard owner who owned a great vineyard and prepared it and put a wall around it and a tower in the middle of it and tilled it greatly. In other words, it's everything you would want to produce fruit. Everything. And then he gave it to some tenants. And those tenants tilled it and raised grapes. And when the produce was ready and the time came for them to harvest, the owner sent representatives that they might take their portion back to the owner. But the tenants who owned the vineyard now beat some of them, stoned others, and just killed the rest. And the owner of the vineyard said, I will just send more. And he sent more. 
but they did the same to them. And then the owner said, I will send my son. Surely they will respect him. Psalm 2, kiss the son, show homage to him. Lest he be angry. And the tenants of the vineyard said, this is his son. Let's kill him and take it all. And they killed him. And when Jesus had said this, it says the religious leaders knew, knew that he was talking about them. But the hardness of a heart would not allow repentance. So Jesus, who had cursed the fig tree that morning, teaches and leaves, comes back the next day, and the fig tree, the one who was so beautiful outside but had no fruit inside, is dead. This is tough. This is Psalm 2. Jesus will teach on Wednesday great parables, giving food to those who are hungry, but warning others, warning others that the day is coming when not one stone would be left on that temple mount. 70 AD that occurs. Giving warning of his coming again. Of that day and hour in Matthew 25, he says, no one knows, but you be ready. For if the owner of the house had known when the thief would come, he would not have allowed that to happen. You be ready. He gives parables of the ten virgins. Five were ready and five weren't. Those five who weren't, the doors are shut and they are locked out. He gives parables of sheep and goats. Two different destinations depending on which side you stand in occur. On Wednesday, what seems to be quiet is actually a day of betrayal as Judas makes a deal for the life of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Looking for an opportune time now to betray him. That moment comes at Passover. It's Thursday. They have prepared the Passover meal to only two know, I believe, to keep Judas at bay for a while so that Jesus can be with the other 11 in an intimate moment over a meal that becomes this meal. We move from Passover to communion that night as he intimately explains what they need to do. Love one another as I have loved you. And yet, praying over them that they be protected from the evil one. John 13 through 17 occurs on Thursday after the Lord of creation had knelt and washed his disciples' feet and said, I have given you an example. Do this for one another. And yet one outside has gathered a cohort of Roman soldiers and Jewish officials. A cohort. 480 soldiers 
I do the math on things like this. Their armor alone would have weighed 20,000 pounds coming after Jesus. I'm sure they went to the upper room and by now he has left. They sing Psalm 118, which is the end of the Hallel. They move across the Kidron and the little brook there. I am positive based on the number of lambs that are slain that day is now running red with the blood of slain lambs. As our lamb steps across the brook, moves into the Garden of Gethsemane and asks the disciples, just stay with me, pray and watch for one hour and moves away from them. And then in the Greek, he repeatedly falls to the ground under the weight and pressure. And in a moment when he's on the ground, it says the capillaries are bursting in his skin and he, our Savior, sweats drops of blood because it's so intense, whatever horror he sees. He gets himself up, faces Judas, who is now coming, and Judas, in total reversal of an honor kiss, betrays Jesus with a kiss. He's arrested and bound. He is led to Annas' house, the high priest's father-in-law, where he's struck for the first time of many blows raining down on his face. Annas moves him to Caiaphas' house, the high priest that he's questioned, are you the son of God? He is again spit on and beat. Peter in this moment will betray him and deny him for the third time. He's taken to the Sanhedrin, as many as they could gather in the early mornings, an illegal assembly, by the way, and ask, are you the Son of God? And the high priest, against all rule and law, tears and says, we have no need to hear anymore. Bound and beaten, he is taken to Pilate. Pilate questions him, are you the king? He will say, my kingdom is not of this earth. Pilate can find nothing wrong, no fault in him. Repeatedly says that. Hears that he's from Galilee, so tries to wash his hands of the matter and sends him off to Herod. If he's a Galilean, let Herod try him. Herod has been waiting for this moment, says he's longed to see Jesus, but never in his pomp, in his position, gone to see him. But now he's drugged before him. And they place on our Lord, I, it says expensive in the Greek, expensive cloak on him. I think it's one of Herod's filthy rags. Such dishonor. He never opened his mouth at Herod's. And so they take him back to Pilate, who then remembers there's a custom that I can release a prisoner and we've got this Barabbas, this murderer, this insurrectionist, and we've got Jesus. Which do you want me to release to you? And they choose Barabbas. Again, trying to appease them, 
Pilate has him scourged, beaten with a whip that's made out of chain and bone. It quite honestly rips the flesh from body when it makes contact. According to Isaiah 53, he is beaten until he is humanly unrecognizable. And he's brought out by Pilate who thinks, surely this is enough. And Pilate says, behold, the man. And the crowd will not hear it. He, he, he stirs up people. He's insurrectionist. He says, don't pay taxes. They, they claim that he's treasonous, that he's against Caesar, and that might get Pilate to act. So Pilate says, behold, your king. We have no king except Caesar. Ourself. Crucify him. Jesus washes his hand. Pilate washes his hand and says, I, I'm done. His blood be on you. What a prophecy. Wearing a crown of thorns. The purple robe is taken off, his clothes put back on, and he is carrying his own cross up the mountain to Golgotha, where as they nail his hands to the wood, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Lifted up between two thieves, people are mocking and ridiculing. Until finally one thief, whoa, Jesus, remember me. And answering the invitation that Christ gives to all, today you will be with me in paradise. Never thinking of himself. He turns and sees his mother next to John, woman, behold your son to take care of her now that he's gone. At noon that day on Friday, the sun stops shining. It turns dark. And for three hours in darkness, he hangs on the cross. Until 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m., he screams out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a moment that I can't biblically understand, the father loses fellowship with the son whom he's had fellowship with for eternity for me and you. I don't understand that. To fulfill scripture, Jesus will say, I thirst. And a sponge is lifted to his lips. It is finished. One breath and let out. Father and son back together. Into your hands I commit my spirit. dead 
Jewish officials, knowing Sabbath is coming, break their legs so we can take them down, not have our land defiled. So the Roman soldiers break the legs of two. When they come to Jesus, he's already dead. To make sure they pierce him so that scripture might be fulfilled, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. His side is pierced, and blood and water flow down into the earth. Why did the nations rage? Pay homage to the Son, lest his anger be quickly kindled. I don't see his anger. The Psalm 2 speaks over time, all of time. So in Revelation 6, there's this scene of the seals being broken. 6 and 19, and those seals are broken only by one who is worthy, the lamb, to undo the seals. And they see this. I look and he broke, the lamb breaks the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And, and judgment is now poured out upon the earth. The sky was split apart and like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved in their places. Then those who didn't stand in him of all time, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man who did not know the Lamb hid themselves hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains and saying, wish that the mountains would just fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, the wrath of the Lamb. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world now sits enthroned. He is the king. He's coronated today. Matthew 19, and we will close. The coming of Christ that he spoke about it at the Olivet Discourse on Tuesday. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and his head are, are like diamonds. And he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself, but he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies, which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses, because from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that he may strike down the nations, because he will rule them with a rod of iron. Psalm 2. And he treads the winepress and the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, it is written a name. Who is this? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is Jesus who enters today to be coronated but who will be rejected by the officials and those of authority. And as I say, this, this is a heavy week. And we must not rush through it because to do so would cheapen grace, would cheapen this moment and the price he's paid. But there are places to stand. You will either stand on the left and see that wrath kindled or you will hear the way the Psalm 2 ends. Blessed are all who take refuge in him.
all who are in him. Paul's language, in him. That's the invitation, in him. And in case you missed it, it's given. I missed it myself when we rode over the top of Mount of Olives and he looks over Jesus. I mean, looks over Jerusalem and Jesus weeps. He's weeping for those who don't believe because he's extending the invitation. Saying this in Matthew 23 uh, in, in the discourse of this week, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks in me so that you would be safe. He's extended the invitation even in the meal we're about to take. Let's pray and we will prepare ourselves to take communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for the record of this week, for your son's example of selfless love that takes your wrath away. We praise you for the lamb who is worthy. The righteousness that's been afforded to us, that's been given by this great week. We praise you and ask that we come forth to this table, that every time we take this meal, we understand we do it to proclaim, really, the, the things that happened this week. It is in his memory that we take these elements that the body and blood of Christ are represented in the bread and juice. In your name, amen. We do ask you to come forward. We will have servers left and right and a self-serve in the back after you've contemplated the work of Christ this week. It is heavy. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Come when you're ready. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.